chapter 21 is where we're going to be, and then we're going to move into chapter 22, perhaps, if we have enough time tonight. But let me set out the timeline, and then we'll, we'll read a little bit, and we'll pray. So we've been working off of this timeline for the past many months, and we are now in the end of the book of Revelation, dealing with the new heaven and the new earth. Um, the Bible tells us that this present earth and the present heaven where God resides will both be destroyed and replaced. And this is God's doing. So this is not a terrible thing. This is, this is a completely new beginning. And this is the reason why God is doing it. Because he's bringing about a new heaven and a new earth because it's a new day. And he talks about in chapter 21, we mentioned last week, how the old order of things have passed away. Behold, I make all things new. And so he doesn't want to just do a makeover with the earth and all of the history that's happened on the earth and all the sin and the terrible things. He wants a completely new beginning so we can spend eternity with him on a new earth where literally heaven comes onto earth. Because in chapter 21 and into chapter 22, John writes about the new Jerusalem, a city that comes out of heaven onto earth. And um, John's not the only one who writes about it here in Revelation. In fact, the prophet Isaiah would write about it in chapter 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. So even 700 and some years before Christ, Isaiah prophetically saw this, which is in our future. So, you know, he's looking way beyond the timeline to this day when there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. By the way, again, no more weeping is ever going to be heard. And we read about that last week. There's going to be no more crying, no more pain. The Apostle Peter also saw this. He would write in 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells, because there will be no unrighteousness. There will be no unbelievers. And so we went through this list last week, but as we make our way through it, here are the first five things we already covered last week. In this new Jerusalem, this new heavenly city that comes on earth, this new earth, uh, God will be present. He will be among us, dwell among us, walk with us. You know, this is all a, a, um, a, a full circle to, you know, God's original intention. Um, because in Genesis, it talks about how God would walk with Adam in the cool of the day. There was this real fellowship that God had, but then man broke that fellowship because of man's sin and rebellion against God. But in the new heaven and the new earth, we're going to have God present among us again. We're going to walk with him and have fellowship with him. In fact, we're going to see tonight how John even writes about how we will see his face. So we will see him face to face. Death, pain, and all our sorrows will be absent. That's a good thing. Nobody likes death. Nobody likes sorrow. Nobody likes pain. 
Um, and this is physical, spiritual, emotional we're talking about. You know, no more physical chronic pain. No more emotional pain. No more tormenting yourself over your past. Still feeling the shame of what you've done even though Jesus has forgiven you. Sometimes we're unforgiving about ourselves. So no more death, pain, or sorrows. All things will be new. Uh, believers will be present. Unbelievers will be absent because there's been a final judgment at the end of chapter 20. All the unbelievers have been thrown into the lake of fire along with the Satan, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. Uh, we also talked last week about these three uh, in chapter 21. No sun or moon will be present, but the light will be bright with God's glory. No sun or moon. God will illuminate the whole place with his Shekinah glory. Um, you know, sun obviously is a regulator of heat. So God is going to be the perfect regulator of heat. No more arguments between husbands and wives about the thermostat. It's going to be a glorious day. Uh, no moon. You know, moons are involved in the, the ebb and flow of the tides, the gravitational pull of the tides. But back in chapter 21, verse 1, it says no more oceans. So you don't need to worry about the tides. Right now, the earth is covered, uh, approximately 74% of the earth's surface covered in water. Uh, but not with the new earth and not the new heaven. There's no sea. There's no oceans. There's no beach. I don't know if my wife's going to be happy here or not. <laughs> Some of you won't either. Uh, you will, um, you know, because everything is new, and so you won't even care. Um, the wall will be high and wide with 12 gates of pearl, and it specifically says that each gate is a separate pearl all by itself. And it says that the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are etched on each of these 12 pearls that serve as gates to this heavenly city. And then number eight, the foundation will be deep with 12 layers. And also in the, in the chapter, it tells us that the names of the um, 12 apostles will be etched on the 12 layers of the foundation. And so again, as I mentioned last week, okay, we know of the original 12 that Jesus chose. It's absent Judas. So who's the 12th? And most believe probably Paul's name will be there on the the wall of fame, if you will. Um, and so that's where we left off. I'm going to read here from chapter 21. I'm going to read um, verse 15. We'll start at verse 14, actually. Verse 14, down to the end of the chapter, and then we'll, we'll unpack this tonight. So chapter 21, verse 14 says, Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The Lamb, of course, a reference to Jesus. That, that name, that title given 29 times in the book of Revelation about Jesus. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. Now, by the way, who is he who speaks with John? Well, that's back up in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me. So um, that event, the seven bowls, was back in Revelation chapter 16. There was an angel who uh, poured out each successive bowl, and one of those angels is kind of taking John in, in the spirit realm, taking John on a tour of this new heavenly city. And so this, um, this angel talked with him there in verse 15. And he had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. 
And then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day, there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let's pause and pray. Father, we come before you tonight and we, th- we thank you for your word. And as we make our way through the closing chapters of, of your book, uh, we pray, God, that you would open our eyes and open our hearts to receive and to believe these things that are to come. And we thank you for the, the glimpse of hope that you have given us in these closing chapters of a new and an and eternal city where we will spend eternity with you, Lord for those who know you as Lord and Savior. And I I pray especially for those who hear this Bible study and they're not sure if they know you, that they would come to the place of surrender, that they might open their hearts to a personal relationship with you, Jesus. And we thank you that you first loved us, that you would give your son Jesus to die for us. We praise you together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. So I'm going to put up the last three points here about this uh, city, this heavenly city of the New Jerusalem. And it tells us here in the first few verses of what we just read tonight in verse 16 that the city will be large. Now it tells us here that in verse 16 the city is laid out as a square and that its length is as great as its breadth and that he measured the city with a reed that's 12,000 furlongs. But notice this, its length, breadth, and height are equal. So even though it talks about how it's laid out as a square, it's actually describing a cube here, that this city is built like a cube, and it is large because it tells us that it measures... 12,000 furlongs. Now, if you have other translations of the Bible, if you have an NIV or an ESV, it says 12,000 stadia. And we're talking the same kind of ancient measurement that turns out to be about 1,500 miles in every direction. 1,500 miles in every direction. This is basically the distance between here and Colorado. 1,500 miles Wide, 1,500 mile, miles long, 1,500 miles high, because it says there that he measures the length, breadth, and height, and they're all equal. 
So this is very interesting. It's very large. Now, to give you a perspective, the old city of Jerusalem presently is only one mile square. Not one square mile, just one mile in about every direction. And, that, and what we're talking comparatively here is 1,500 times that. I mean, it's 1,500 miles in every direction. It, by the way, is roughly the size, even though we're talking a sphere versus a cube, but it's roughly the size of the moon. That the, city, the new city of Jerusalem is roughly about the size of the moon. Now, um, some translations, when they translate furlongs and stadia, they will come up with different, slightly different measurements. 1,380 miles, 1,400 miles. The New American Standard Version of the Bible actually says 1,500. So it, it's, this is approximate, but, it's, um, but it gives you an idea of the size and the scope here. It is huge. Now, um, some interesting considerations about the size of this particular uh, city that's coming. Dr. Henry Morris, somebody I've quoted many times before, um, he was the founder of um, Institute for Creation Research, and um, he, he died in 2006. I had a chance to meet him before he died, but back in the 60s, he was the dean of civil engineering at Virginia Tech. Um, he got his PhD at Rice, so, you know, very smart man. Um, and he did some mathematical calculations of the size of this city and the population that may likely be in it. And Dr. Morris, this is just intriguing, it's not, you know, decided, that he just kind of was crunching some numbers. And he said, look, roughly, if you look at past, present, and potentially future population until Jesus comes, until this new city, that there will be roughly 100 billion people who have, who have come and gone. 100 billion. Past, present, and future. And his calculation was, if you were to consider, and this is just a random number that he drew, that maybe 20% came to faith in Christ over the course of those 100 billion people who lived and died on the planet, then you're talking 20 billion people will be in the New Jerusalem. 20 billion. Now, right now, there's only about 8 billion people on the whole planet. But if over the course of human history, 20% of people came into relation with Christ, again, that number is just, you know, a random number. But it, it could very well be, we're talking 20 billion people who are living in the New Jerusalem. That feels crowded to me. Yeah, I don't know about you, but I, I, just, I, I was thinking, you know, maybe just, you know, a million. You know, how, I, I don't know what number you had in your head. Like, what do you think is going to be in heaven? But I thought we might have a little bit more elbow room. But here's what's interesting. Dr. Morris continued with the calculation. He said, listen, since the city is described in the Bible as a cube. Now, this is a, this, you have to think outside the cube on this, all right? But he said, it is likely that a city block is not a square block. It is a cube block. And that you have avenues going vertical and you have a, uh, avenues going horizontal. So it's kind of a, a, an interesting concept to think about. But he said, when, if, if you were to calculate 1,500 miles in every direction and you have avenues, city streets that are going both vertical as well as horizontal within this cube, you have more than enough space to accommodate 20 billion people. So it's, it's very intriguing. I just throw that out there because uh, a man a lot smarter than I am um, came up with some of these figures. But, you know, that's the size, at least the Bible tells us the approximate size is 1500 miles in every direction. And, and it's huge. 
Uh, But also number 10 on our list is the city will be beautiful with every precious stone. Now, it tells us in verse 18 that the wall itself, and again, this is a walled city. The wall of the city was made of jasper, that's in verse 18, and the city was of pure gold. But when it tells us that it was made of pure gold, it adds like clear glass. And in fact, the the same thing is mentioned in verse uh, 21. At the end of verse 21, it says, And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So it's hard for us to grasp that something gold could also be transparent. Because we think of something gold as opaque. We don't think of it as transparent. You can see through it. But, th- but it has a gold glimmer to this whole city, and yet it's transparent. The, the glory of God is going to shine through every wall, every street, everything within this city. God's spirit and his glory is, gonna, is going to you know, move within and without and around. Uh, and so there's something solid yet transparent about this. So when we talk about, oh, streets of gold, and, you know, when we sing the song, I can only imagine, um, there's truth to that. This, this future city, at least, this is not necessarily a description of what heaven looks like now, but at least it tells us that the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, city of Jerusalem, which is heaven on earth, is going to be made of gold, and it's going to be, though, transparent like glass. So it's an interesting concept there. And there are 12 foundations to the wall. As we look at these colors here, there are 12 foundations, and each foundation has a different color. And again, each of the 12 foundations of the wall have the names of the different apostles etched within the wall. And uh, some people want to make a comparison between, and, and those of you who love to get into this kind of Bible uh, trivia, you look at, okay, we have 12 layers here, 12 different gems. Does this correlate? If, for those of you who remember, the high priest in the Old Testament had 12 different gems within his ephod or the vestment that he wore. And um, people try to make a correlation, but it's hard to make that correlation. Eight out of the 12 gems that the priest wore in his ephod match out of these 12, but only eight. And then, then it, it doesn't make the full comparison. So um, you can do with it what you want, but um, this is a list here of gemstones that are the color and, and are the substance of these 12 foundation layers of the walls. Now, I'm going to give you a brief overview of what these colors might look like, but you have to bear in mind that what we might call jacinth is not necessarily the color that of jacinth when, when we get to this new city. But, um, and in fact, even when you look at different, I'm not a gemologist, obviously, and, uh, and, but when you look at different um, details about what gemologists say about some of these stones, there's even variance within gemologists about what, how you would define. For example, the first one on the, on the list here is, is jasper again. Not only was the wall made of jasper and the city was pure gold, but verse 19, the foundation of the wall of the city was adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper. Jasper is a multicolored gem. It is in the mineral class of quartz, and it is usually reddish, 
from iron oxide, but then when you read different people who study these kind of things, they say, yeah, but it can also be white, it can also be yellow, it can also be green, it can also be orange. So who knows what jasper will look like in the New Jerusalem. The next layer, number two, if you just read from verse 19 on, this is the list I'm going to go through. Sapphire, well, we pretty much know sapphire is a a clear, deep blue gem. The third layer is chalcedony, that is thought to be a greenish stone with a few stripes of other colors mixed in. The fourth layer is emerald, pretty familiar with emerald, a bright green stone, dark, rich green. Uh, The fifth layer is sardonyx. Sardonyx is a reddish-white onyx similar to the color of healthy fingernails. So that's kind of this pinkish color, reddish-white. The sixth layer is sardius. Some translations say carnelian, which is a fiery red stone. Now, that is one stone that does match the vestment of the high priest. The sardius stone occupied the first place on the high priest's ephod, and it represented in birth order the tribe of Reuben. The seventh layer is chrysolite. Chrysolite is a bright, light green color. The eighth foundation is beryl. Beryl is a sea green emerald, lighter than chalcedony. The ninth layer is topaz. It's a transparent greenish yellow stone. The tenth layer is chrysoprase. It's a yellowish, pale green stone similar to aquamarine color. So there's a lot of green in the new city, uh, at least in terms of what we think of these gems. The eleventh layer is jacinth. It's a violet, hyacinth colored gem. So we get into some purple colors here at the end because the twelfth foundation is amethyst and that is a purple colored stone. So it's going to be a very, very beautiful, colorful city. Many years ago, um, when I was probably, I'm going to guess, 12 or 13, I remember uh, my mom taking me to some church somewhere in Northern Virginia. I don't remember where we went. But we went to hear the testimony of a man whose name was Marvin Ford. And he was going around traveling the country talking about his um, after-death experience. That he was a believer and he died. He was clinically dead for 30 minutes. And, and, um, and he talked about what he saw in heaven. Now, you know, I, I'm always somewhat cautious about, you know, people who, you know, talk about, well, I've, I've been to heaven and dark tunnels and, and, or people that I've been to hell and, and just, okay, I, I, all I'm going to really ultimately rely on is the Bible. But I do remember one thing that Marvin Ford said in his testimony was that he saw colors that he had never seen. And the description here, it's interesting because all of these beautiful gems speak of beautiful colors. It's a very, very colorful place that we have to try to imagine. Now, here's what's mind-boggling. We have three primary colors on, you know, on, on the color wheel from which all other colors are derived. What if there was just one more primary color? I mean, it would open up a whole other host that we've never seen. It would open up a whole other host of colors that we can't even imagine. And so I, I was reading some statistics on this, just in terms of color and what the human eye can actually see. Now, this is based on what researchers say 
are derived from the three primary colors that we have right now, just based on, on you know, the, the red, yellow, and blue primary colors from which all other colors are derived on the color wheel. There are 1,000 shades of light. This is what we can see with the human eye. 1,000 shades of light. Within those shades, we can detect 100 different levels of red-green shades. And we can also see 100 levels of yellow-blue shades. So it works out when you take 1,000 times 100 times 100. Researchers say that the human eye can basically see, are you ready? 10 million different shades of color. So if there was one more, just one more primary color, we're talking millions more of colors we can't even imagine. So what heaven will look like, this beautiful city, is hard for us to fathom because there could be additional colors that we've never even seen. Then we're just going to be wild. You know, I guarantee you it is. And for those of you, I have a nephew who's colorblind and he got, he got a pair of those glasses that look like shades, but it opened up his whole world. Like, you know, he, he's uh, in his twenties now, but he only got them a few years ago. And for the first like 20 years of his life, he just had never seen color. And when he put those on, it was just like, whoa, it's just like he was overwhelmed with what real color is. Um, and, and it's special glasses to help colorblind people be able to see colors. So it's like when we get to heaven, we're all going to get our own, you know, non-glasses, but just glasses are going to open up brand new colors. It's going to be, wow, this is just like amazing. We're stepping into something that is going to just be, those of you who were tripping back in the 70s, it's going to be nothing, <laughs> nothing compared to the psychedelic colors you're going to see when you get to heaven. You thought that was amazing. No, this is going to be amazing. All right, back to our list. So, number 11, the city will have no temple. Now, this is interesting because it says specifically there in verse 22, John, John says, but I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so, there's no temple because God moves among us now. Back in, in the early part of chapter 21, it talks about how he tabernacles among us. He moves among us. Um, we're going to see here... Um, well, if you just jump ahead, I'll give you a quick preview into chapter 22, verse 4, because it goes along with the same thing we're talking about. Chapter 22, verse 4, they shall see his face. They shall see his face. We shall see God's face. Yeah, praise God. Because, you know, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And he says, he says then, now I see in part, but then I shall see face to face. And there will be this time that we actually are in God's presence and we see the face of God. And so he moves among us. So he's not a recluse in a temple anywhere. He's moving among his people. We are seeing him as Jesus reveals himself and as the glory of God is ever present in this place. But in addition, another reason for no temple, because no sacrifices, no sacrifices are needed, no central place of worship, because we're always going to be worshiping in general. You don't need to go to a certain place. We're just going to be you know, it's going to be a constant place of worship. And, um, and so no, no need for a temple. God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No sin or atonement necessary. No lofty place for God. He wants to live among us and commune with us as he originally did with, with Adam. 
In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, it says, And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden because they had, they had sinned. But there's no shame in, in heaven because we've been, we get glorified bodies. And there's not going to be this propensity to sin because we won't have a flesh. We're going to be sealed now in the Holy Spirit unto the Lord. Not a chance for another rebellion. Not among us. Now, there's great theological debate about what about the angels? Could they still rebel? Maybe some of you want to text that question in for next week, but I'll get into that more later, but not for tonight. So um, no, no need for the temple. Now, there's something challenging here in the way chapter 21 ends because it says, and the nations of those, this is verse 24, or yeah, verse 24, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Okay, now, nations, there in chapter, in verse 24, can be translated Gentiles. Um, And it is specifically letting us know that this is the place that Gentile believers are welcomed as well. They are delineated here. Uh, because God wants to make certain that we understand not just Jew, but Gentile also belong to the new Jerusalem, as many as are saved, as many as come to faith in Jesus. So the nations are, are those who are primarily Gentiles, it speaks of here. But what does it mean there in verse 24, the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it? What kings of the earth? I mean, Jesus has already ruled and reigned on the earth for a thousand years, the millennial kingdom. Now that's gone. This is the new heaven, new earth, new city of Jerusalem. Why are there nations and why are there kings? And I got to be honest with you, there's no explanation for this. You read any commentary and every Bible scholar is like, we have no idea what kings we're talking about here. Why would there be other nations? Why would there be delineations of nations bringing within this wonderful, large city, um, you know, they're bringing offerings or bringing something to glorify God. Um, it's just not understood very well. So we have to just let, let that speak for itself and we'll, we'll realize it when we get there. But again, it talks at the end of chapter 21 about how the gate shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. Again, you know, it, the God's glory is constantly illuminating it. The reason we have night and day here is because we have an earth that rotates on its axis. And so, you know, when we're spinning away from the sun, we, we have nighttime. And, but we're not, you're not spinning away from the glory of God. You're, you're in the city where His glory is constantly shining. So there is no night. And there's no need for sleep because we have a glorified body that doesn't need to get rejuvenated or replenished. You, you, you will never need to sleep anymore. Um, and, and so, uh, which, you know, some of you are catching up on right now, but, um, but you won't, but in that day you won't need to, and, um, and, and there just won't be a need for sleep and there will be no, no night. Now we will be in glorified bodies. And it's interesting when we get into the next chapter, there's food to eat, but the good news is you eat for enjoyment, not for sustenance. And you never, you never have to worry about your weight. So it's all good. It's all good. Man, I hope they have Krispy Kreme up in heaven. But so that's, that's how uh, chapter 21 ends. That, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter in anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so you get your name in the Lamb's Book of Life because you've made a profession of faith in Jesus, 
um, anyone else who has rejected Jesus, um, they're not even here at this point. This is just a statement that only those who have a relationship with Jesus are going to have access into this new city. Um, in, the, in the last five minutes we have, let's look at the first five verses of chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads, and there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So we're introduced here, and I'll have more to say about it next week. We're introduced to uh, the water of life that is not mentioned anywhere else outside of the book of Revelation, and it's mentioned three times in the book of Revelation. Uh, chapter 21, verse 6, right here in 22.1, and one last time in 22, verse 17. So we'll talk more about the water of life next week. And then we're also introduced, not for the first time, But we're introduced to the tree of life in verse 2. And um, the tree of life is mentioned also three times in the book of Revelation. Uh, It is mentioned uh, first in chapter 2, verse 7, the letter to the church of Ephesus. At the end where where Jesus gives this this commendation to, to those who overcome... In in, uh, Revelation 2, 7 to the church of Ephesus, he said to those who overcome, you shall eat of the tree of life. So he's looking forward to this time here. And then we see the tree of life mentioned again here in chapter 22, verse 2, and then in chapter 22, verse 14. Outside of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is mentioned three other times. The first time it's mentioned, go ahead, tell me, Genesis. Genesis. It's mentioned in the book of Genesis, chapter 2. There are two trees that are specifically named. They're not the only trees in the Garden of Eden. But two trees that are specifically named in the book of Genesis chapter 2. And it's uh, verse 9. Where it mentions that God in the midst of the Garden of Eden planted one tree called the tree of life. That's what we're talking about. And another tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was a choice that God gave man. Are you going to be obedient to me or disobedient? Because he wants a love relationship, not a legal one. And so the only way to know if it's a love relationship is he offers mankind choice. Unfortunately, man failed the test because God said, you may eat of any of the trees except the one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally, the dying process begins. Death entered the human race. Adam and Eve chose. Eve was the one deceived by the serpent, but Adam was the one who was not the spiritual leader he should have been to tell her, don't eat that fruit. But nevertheless, she ate of it. The Bible says she turned to her husband and gave, and he ate of it, meaning he was standing right there, condoning the whole thing. And so thus, the human race fell. They disobeyed God. The dying process began. What is interesting about the tree of life is that it tells us after man fell, that in Genesis chapter 3, I'll read this to you from Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. Now, us is the plurality of a single God. It's a reference to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. One God. Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore... 
The Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's what the Bible tells us. That after Adam and Eve sinned against God, disobeyed him because they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When God expelled them from the garden, he did it for their own good. Because it tells us there in Genesis 3, had they turned and then immediately eaten of the tree of life, they would have forever eternally sealed their sinful state of separation from God. And because God wanted a plan of reconciliation to bring man back into fellowship with him, I use man in the universal term, man, woman, all of us, Okay, because he wanted a redemptive plan to reconcile man to himself, he cast man out of the garden, posted angels, cherubim with flaming swords so that they could not get back in to eat of the tree of life, lest they seal their sinful state eternally. So that's the last that the tree of life is mentioned. It's mentioned uh, once in chapter two, twice in chapter three of Genesis. And then the flood happens. And God in his infinite, miraculous ways has supernaturally plucked up the tree of life. And we see it appear in Revelation chapter 22. From which all the redeemed saints will eat, because at that point now, your eternal state is sealed in Jesus. And so your eternal state is in fellowship with him, having been reconciled to him and you can eat then of the tree of life. It's going to be a glorious day. We'll talk more about it because it talks about how it's spread on both sides of the river. It's a little confusing in the language, and the nations come for the healing. What does it mean, the healing? Is there sickness? If it eats it for the healing, we'll talk about all that next week. But let's just pause now and pray. And I just, again, want to appeal to those of you who don't know that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. All that we're talking about here is accessible to anyone. But you have to make a decision that you're going to surrender your life to Jesus because nobody gets to heaven for being a good person because no one is good enough to get there. And so Jesus dies on a cross for all of humanity so that his righteousness can be given to us through faith in what he did on a cross to die for our sins, to take the penalty for our sins so that if we put our faith and trust in him, we might have our sins forgiven and be saved. And it really is that simple. Now, it's not a prayer one and done kind of a thing. It's that simple in that that's where the journey begins. We're saved by grace. It's the work of God in our hearts and lives because we, by faith, receive his free gift of salvation. And then it is living out our lives in a journey with Jesus so that our ultimate destination is what we've been talking about tonight. But you have to want that. It's a choice. God, from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden, has given mankind a choice. And you have to want a love relationship with him. He's not going to drag you to heaven. Nobody's going to go to heaven kicking and screaming. Guarantee you. We're going to go there because we want to. And we're going to go there because we're thankful that he made the way possible through himself. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the hope of heaven. We thank you for this glorious, eternal city that you have opened wide to all who would believe. And I pray tonight that those who are here and watching online and later will listen to this by podcast or watch the video, Lord, that for anyone who does not have that assurance 
that they're going to be in this new beautiful city that we're talking about, that they would surrender their life right now. That they would surrender their life right now to you, Jesus. That they would trust you by faith as Lord and Savior. Now I'm going to pause in my prayer with your heads bowed. I'm going to invite you, sitting here, watching online, at whatever point you listen to this, If you want a relationship with Jesus, it begins with a decision. And that decision is your choice. But I'm going to invite you to make that decision tonight to just simply say yes to Jesus. To acknowledge your need for a Savior. To admit you're not good enough because nobody is to get to heaven on your own. But God made a way possible by giving His Son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. I'm going to invite you to trust Him as your Savior. And I'm going to lead you in a simple prayer that the journey would begin right now. And if you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I invite you to pray this prayer with me. I'm going to go slowly enough so you can repeat it with me. You can make it your prayer. You just can whisper it right where you're seated. You can say yes to Jesus right now. But for those who are seated here in the congregation, I'm going to give you the opportunity, just with heads bowed, eyes closed, just to lift up your hand, just to raise a hand. So that I, as I look out, no one else, just as I look out, and I can just affirm you, and I won't call you out by name, but I just want to know who, who, who I'm praying with tonight. If you want to know Christ as your Savior, just slip up your hand. Yes, God bless you. God bless you. Just say, yes, that's me, Pastor Gary. I want to know Christ as my Savior. Yes, God bless you. I see you, sir. I want to trust him as my Lord tonight. I want to ask him to come into my heart and come into my life. Yes, God bless you. Thank you, sir. Those of you watching online, pray this prayer with me. Any of you can pray this right now. Just say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died on a cross for me. I know you died for the world, but right now I thank you you died for me. I ask you to forgive me of my sins and to come into my heart and into my life. I surrender to you as my Lord and Savior. I believe by faith that you gave your life as an atoning sacrifice for my sins. And I receive Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you for loving me. And thank you for dying for me. I receive you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, before you're dismissed, listen, if you prayed that prayer with me, even if you didn't raise your hand, if you prayed that prayer, we'll have a pastor down front here to give you a Bible just to remember tonight's decision. You can take it home with you. And if you email the church, we'll send you a Bible too. I got a beautiful email from an 11-year-old girl this week who said, I prayed to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And then she got her Bible and then she emailed back. She says, thank you for my beautiful Bible. So, so you online can receive a Bible too. So God bless you all. Let's praise the Lord. Amen.